With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. the gospel which I preach to you, which also you receive, in which also you serve, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Verse 12. Now if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ was raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have been who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ will all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ at his coming. May the Lord add to our understanding his reading of his precious word.
in that college as he would come visit with us. Dr. Criswell would uh, share things with us and preach things to us, and he shared this with us, and we all asked him, uh, Dr. Criswell, can we use that outline? Can we preach that when we go out into our own churches? And he said, and I'll never forget, he stood before us and he said, preach it, boys, just preach it. And so this morning, I'm going to try to preach it, as Dr. Criswell said it was okay to preach it. And I want to share with you seven incontrovertible, undeniable facts that prove that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Today, we live in a world some 2,000 years after the fact that would deny that. And listen, if Jesus were not raised from the dead, and if that was to be proven that it was a lie or that if in some way his body could be produced, never was, never will. But if it were, then we may as well eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die, and that's all there is. That's what Paul said in that 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians that Dr. Luther just read. There's nothing that we need to worry about if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. Someone said to me one time, listen, it doesn't matter to me whether Jesus came up out of the grave or not. It's the message of his life that we have to carry on. I submit to you this morning that there is no message and meaning to his life without the resurrection from the dead. And so this morning, in this 25th chapter, the 26th chapter of the book of Acts, I want to share this message with you entitled, The Reality of the Resurrection. There is recorded here in these chapters the apology, or what we would call today the defense of the Apostle Paul as he stood uh, for his life. Uh, he's in Caesarea, and he's been arrested in the temple in Jerusalem there. And down there in Caesarea for over three years, he's been in jail, incarcerated. Felix, the procurator, having been recalled, and Festus, now the new governor, having been sent to take his place. They find one of these prisoners left over there, and his name is Paul. And he listens to the prisoner, and he listens to all the charges that are made against him. And he's very surprised at the accusations against the Apostle Paul. And uh, while those days are passing there, there comes to see the governor, Festus, uh, there comes Herod Agrippa the uh, second, and he brings with him his sister-in-law, uh, with whom he lives as a wife in an illegitimate uh, relationship. And they come, and they come to visit the procurator. And while they're, they're there, Festus begins to speak to him about the affairs of the state. And finally, Festus mentions this unusual prisoner, Paul, to King Agrippa. And he says, this prisoner, Paul, has appealed to Caesar, Agrippa, but I've got to send him to Rome because the law says that he gets to go to Rome to appeal because he's a Roman citizen. But I hardly know what to write in his accusation when he leaves. If I send him to Caesar, there has to be some criminal charge pressed against him, but I don't know what the charge is. For when I examined him, it concerns certain questions about their own religion of which I have no knowledge. And Agrippa himself, being a Jew, said to that Roman procurator, Festus, I would also like to hear that man myself. And Festus said, then tomorrow at this time, you shall hear him. And now in the 26th chapter of the book of Acts, Paul is making this defense for the faith before King Herod Agrippa II. And in that defense, Paul says in Acts chapter 26, at verses 6 through 8, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, serving God day and night, hope to come. For which hope sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of mine enemies. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you, a Jew, that God should raise the dead? Now, what a piercing question. What a pointed question and appeal that is to this Jewish king, Agrippa. Why should it be thought a thing incredible to you who believe in God, King Agrippa, that the same mighty Jehovah Lord should raise the dead? It would be a trite understatement for me to say that the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead 
and the grand pronouncement of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is literally the dynamic foundation of the Christian faith itself. That would just be an understatement to say that. You read in the passage there, if Christ is not risen, then is our faith in vain, and uh, we are yet in our sins. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruit of them that sleep. Bible says, as in Adam all died, we're all children of that fallen race of Adam. We have fallen, sin entered the human race, and we all died in Adam. The Bible says, Dr. Luther read, so all in Christ shall be made alive. And so this is the pivotal doctrine, this doctrine of the resurrection, the teaching of the grand and heralded pronouncement of Jesus being raised from among the dead. This is the foundational doctrine of our faith. Now, in this message this morning, I want to share with you seven, as I said, incontrovertible, undeniable facts of the raising up from the dead of Jesus, our Lord. One, a philosophical fact. Two, a pragmatic fact. Three, a psychological fact. Four, an ecclesiastical fact. Five, a conversional fact. Six, a literary fact. And seven, an experiential fact to prove the reality of the resurrection. Fact number one, a, a philosophical fact. One of the most moving and meaningful of all the verses in the Bible that you will ever read is Romans chapter 1, verse 4. And speaking of Jesus, that verse said, He is declared horizo, or marked out. The word that we get from that in our English language is the word horizon, a place that's marked out where the earth meets the sky. And so that word horizo, Jesus has been marked out. So let me translate that verb literally. Jesus Christ marked out among all mankind, among all humanity, this man marked out declared to be the Son of God with power by the Spirit of holiness in the, in the resurrection of the dead. A meaning in that verse is almost infinite. Mark out this man Jesus to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. It is a fact, and you cannot deny it, that in this universe there is power. There is omnipotence. There is power immeasurable. We see it every day. We see it on every hand. The sun shines by the order and the mandate of God. The oceans, in God's infinite wisdom, are liquid. These planets in their orbits, without unfailing orbit, they revolve around that central sun, all of them seemingly guided by the infinity of an invisible hand, and all of them in just the right place, just the right orbit, and just the right speed in order to sustain life on this planet Earth. And in a thousand other ways do we see the immeasurable power of God on this Earth. And that power also, no less, reaches down to the morality which God has created in me and in you. In other words, there is a right and there is a wrong. And it is a fact that we are sensitive to, that right and that wrong. It's as much a fact as the sun that's shining today or the earth and the other planets that are orbiting around it. God instilled in you and me and all of us that morality, that sensitivity to good and evil, to right and wrong. And with that being said, our Lord, the Bible explains to us and shows us, He was beautiful. He was perfect. He was godly and spiritual, and He was reverential. He lived a beautiful and holy life. But... That life on the pages of Scripture ended in dishonor and degradation and discredit and defilement and disgrace. He was crucified, and he was executed as a common felon and an ordinary criminal. This beautiful, perfect, godly, spiritual, and reverential man, Jesus, he was dishonored. He crucified as a common felon. Now, let me ask you this when you think that through. In this vast universe, is that the verdict of right? Is that the verdict of morality? Does evil forever triumph over good? Does sin 
and death and the grave reign forever? Listen, the same Lord God Almighty that made the sun to shine, made the planets to orbit around that sun, the same God who created the thousands of other marvelous things that are astonishing to our eyes, is the same Lord God that created our sensitivity to what is right and what is wrong. And it is impossible, it is unthinkable, that wrong should forever triumph and that truth should forever be in disgrace, or that sin and death and the grave should have dominion over God's heritage and God's creation. There is a philosophical reason that lies behind the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a philosophical fact, undeniable, that goodness triumphs over evil, that life will triumph over death, and heaven will triumph over hell. Fact number two, to prove the reality of the resurrection, there's a pragmatic fact or a practical fact. And on this, we come to the other end of the spectrum, pragmatism, reality. And I'm referring to the fact of the empty tomb. You look at how the Lord was buried in a winding sheet with a hundred pounds of spices, frankincense, myrrh, and aloes, with a headdress that was separate and apart, the Bible says. And he was laid in a newly cut tomb. And in front of that tomb, there was rolled a heavy stone. And that stone, perhaps weighing as much as two to three tons, was sealed by the seal of the Roman Empire. And that, in that day, was the highest authority the world had ever known. And not only that, but it was guarded by a contingency of Roman soldiers. And those soldiers were there day and night, night and day, to see that Jesus stayed dead. But on the third day, after Friday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, on the third day, the body was gone. The tomb was empty. The grave clothes were undisturbed. And no one today, no one, not even any of the scholars who are scoffers or unbelievers, no one questions the fact as to whether or not that tomb was empty. It was empty. Now, there may be some differences of opinion among those who do not believe the Bible as to what happened to the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but there's not a scholar worth his salt today who would ever deny secular history or biblical history that the tomb was empty. It was empty. The body had disappeared. Now, how was that? How was that? Well, it could have been two things. If he was gone, it could have been by human hands, or it could have been by supernatural hands. There could be no other way, amen? There's no other way, either humanly or supernaturally, his body was gone. If by human hands, it could have been done by two groups, by his friends, the apostles, or by his enemies, his foes. Well, did the apostles steal his body away? Now think about that. How could they? He was there in a tomb covered by a heavy stone. It was sealed by the seal of the Roman emperor, guarded by a contingency of Roman soldiers who knew that if his body was removed, they would die as a result of uh, neglecting their duty. How could those disciples have done it? What about his friends? uh, Could they have gotten him out of there? You remember the night that Jesus was in the garden and Judas betrayed him with a kiss on the cheek? That the disciples at that moment, when those Roman guards arrested Jesus, they fled. They ran. They were scared for their own lives. The Bible says even one of those disciples, in his quickness to get away and trying to get out of there, somehow or another, all of his clothes came off of him, and he ran away naked. They were scared to death. How could they have done it? Well, it's not by the apostles or his friends, then by his enemies. His foes. Now, would they have stolen the body away? Listen, they were there to see to it that no such thing, no legendary hallucination could ever happen. They were there to guard the tomb. The last thing his enemies wanted was to see him come out of that tomb and for them to steal the body away and to lend credence to the very superstition they were sent there to prevent. Why, that is unthinkable. And then within a few days after the crucifixion of our Lord, there is Simon Peter, one of those dejected and despondent disciples who had denied that he even knew Jesus when he was asked about it. He was fearing for his own life. 
There, just a few days later, is Peter standing up with boldness, filling Jerusalem with the marvelous good news that Jesus has been raised from among the dead. All it would have taken to have tied the lie to the preaching of Simon Peter was for his foes, his enemies that crucified the Lord to say, why, this man Peter is a liar. Jesus is not alive, as he says. Come here. Then opening the tomb, they could have exhibited the dead, decaying body of the Son of God. Why didn't they do that? Because there wasn't a body there to be exhibited. Those grave clothes, that winding sheet, and that headdress, undisturbed, the Bible says. They were empty, and the body had disappeared. That is a pragmatic fact, a practical fact, undeniable. Fact number three, to prove the reality of the resurrection, a psychological fact. We have to account in some way for the miraculous change in the mind and attitude and spirit and in the life of those disciples. On Friday, they are cast down. They are in the depths of uh, abysmal despair. Every, every hope they'd entertained had died when Jesus expired on the cross. And they never believed in a resurrection. They were the ones who were not convinced. They were the ones who had argued against it. Those disciples were the ones that had to be shown. As one of them, Thomas said, I won't believe he's raised from the dead unless I put my fingers into the prints of the nails and thrust my head into the ribbon scar in his side. He said, I don't believe it. And on more than one occasion, Jesus had spoken to these disciples about his resurrection after three days in that tomb. The Bible said they were afraid to ask him about it because they didn't understand it. They didn't know what Jesus was talking about. And now these disciples, there they were, without hope, depressed, discouraged, dismayed. And yet, just days later, now they are flames of fire. They're filling Jerusalem. And finally, the whole earth with the heralding and the announcement of the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now they're standing in the face of the Sanhedrin, those who are responsible for the death of the Lord, standing up preaching this Jesus whom you have crucified has been raised from among the dead. What boldness. How do you account for that? How do you account for that change in mind and heart and attitude? It is a psychological fact that has to be faced. Now, how do you account for it? I have a premise. There are three possibilities, three. Number one, they're proclaiming a lie. They, in fact, did steal the body away, and they're proclaiming a lie. They hid it away. Now they're saying he was raised from the dead. They're preaching a lie. Could they be doing that? Psychologists tell us, psychiatrists say, that is a, that is a psychological impossibility. Why, these men are suffering for the faith. These men, as they lived on in their life and continued to preach that same message, they're being executed. They're being crucified. They're being burned at the stake and thrown and cast into boiling cauldrons of oil. These men, every one of them martyred with the exception of John, who was left to die in starvation and exposure on the island of Patmos. All of the rest died a martyr's death. It is psychologically impossible that they would do that. Men don't lay down their lives for a lie. Yet every one of those apostles was executed except John. Everyone. Well, if it wasn't a lie, then perhaps it was a legend. A legend. Wait a minute. A legend? You mean a legend could develop in three days? In 50 days? You mean a legend can, could develop from Friday until Sunday? That is unthinkable and unimaginable psychologically. But another, if it wasn't a lie, if it wasn't a legend, then certainly it had to be a lunatic hallucination. Mary Magdalene said she saw the Lord raised from the dead, and the French critic Renan said the dream of an hallucinated woman became the foundation and hope of the church. Well, the unbelieving world then, as he said that, Renan wrote that, the unbelieving world accepted that as truth, but it's not true. I mean, it's ridiculous. It was not Mary Magdalene alone who said, I've seen him. He's been raised from the dead. It was Simon Peter. 
It was two on the way to Emmaus. It was all of the apostles. Paul names out James, the Lord's brother. It was 500 brethren at once, the Bible says. And for 40 days did they walk with him, did they talk with him, did they handle him, did they see him, did they eat with him. And could it be, could it be that just at that particular time, never before and never after, these hundreds and hundreds were deluded by a lunatic hallucination? That's unthinkable. No one in their right mind would even consider that. It's a psychological fact. The marvelous transformation of these disciples from men of despair to the men of preaching the great faith of the resurrection of Jesus Christ for which they laid down their life. It is proof positive that Jesus was raised from among the dead. Fact number four, an ecclesiastical fact, a fact pertaining to the church. There is a church. We are here. There is a church. It exists. There was a time when it was founded, when it began. That is an ecclesiastical fact. The presence of, the, the, the birth of, the, 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 the beginning of the ancient and primitive church. Where did it come from? Why is the church here still to this day? And why is this, the church, one of the most dynamic things ever born? in the history of humanity. Where did the church come from? What gave it credence? What gave it power? Look at that church, that first church. It's a miracle. It was formed, uh, composed almost entirely of Jews, thousands of Jews. One day at Pentecost, there were 3,000 Jews who were added to the faith, and they only counted men in those days. You turn over to the next chapter, there were 5,000 more Andron men that were added and obedient to the faith, the Bible says, which would mean at that time, that early, there could have been as many as 25,000 members of that first church there in Jerusalem, and the majority of them Jews. That's unthinkable, isn't it? Turn the page again in the book of Acts, we read of a great multitude of priests who have now become obedient to the faith. And you say, Jimmy, what's the big deal about that? that these Jews would come to faith. Do you not read the Old Testament? I mean, in the book of Deuteronomy, it is written, Cursed is every man that is hanged on a tree. Cursed is every man who is crucified, nailed to a cross. Yet in Jerusalem, there are thousands and thousands and thousands upon thousands of Jews, all of them Jews, who are humble disciples and followers of the Son of God who was hanged on a tree. How do you explain that? But that's not all. That primitive church, church faced the entire world, and they did it with fearless and bold courage and bravery. They challenged the whole Roman Empire, the whole world system of civilized worship in that day. Every false god in every province of the Roman Empire they challenged. And that was no small thing because of the hand of the emperor was the one who sustained all of that worship. And it was looked upon as patriotic duty that every citizen of Rome and every slave, every Jew who was a slave to the Roman Empire was to bow down and worship before the image of the emperor and place on the flame that burned before his image just a little pinch of incense paying homage to the emperor, the Caesar. And those Christians, they refused to do it. They refused. And not only that, but they challenged the whole system of Oriental religion. And it became a cry in those days uh, to the, the, the Christians, to the lions, the Christians to the stake. And they fed the Christians to wild beasts. And they burned them with fire. But that primitive church faced the Roman Empire and all of its power. And they faced the whole system of ancient worship. And within a relatively short period of time, they swung the Roman Empire on new hinges. And they subverted the whole Greco-Roman world uh, of false deity and false worship. You think about that today. Do you know anybody today that's worshiping Neptune? Do you know anybody today that's worshiping Venus or Apollo or Isis or Isis or, or, or Job or Junabi? Do you know anyone who's worshiping any of those ancient gods? No. You know anybody today who's building great, beautiful, elaborate temples? 
those false deities. That primitive church subverted the whole civilized world of religion. And where did it come from? Who gave it its birth? That is an ecclesiastical fact to prove the reality of the resurrection. Number five, the reality of the resurrection, a conversional fact, a conversional fact, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Think about that. This man who was breathing out threatening and slaughter against the people of God, he was hauling them into prison. And when they were put to death, he would cast his vote as a member of the Sanhedrin against them. This man, Paul, Saul of Tarsus, he was the arch enemy of Christ and the Christian faith. And now this man is preaching the faith that once he destroyed. Here in Acts chapter 26, what happened? What happened to cause that? Well, back in Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus, <clears throat> above him, the Bible says, was the brightness of the noonday Syrian sun. And uh, there appeared to him, the Bible says there, in the way, the Son of God. And this persecuting Saul fell at his feet. You remember, he was en route to Damascus in order to breathe more fire and kill more Christians. And Saul fell, and that blinding light hit him. And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. But rise up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to show you great things that you're going to suffer for my name's sake. And I will send you to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles. Now, how do you account for that, for Paul? Was Paul a a man with small mind and little understanding? Was he an ignorant and unlearned man? No, there's never lived one greater than Paul in mind and spiritual sensitivity. Paul the apostle, you can read it for yourself in this New Testament that we have, that you have in your lap, in that Bible. Most of that New Testament is adventitiously and summarily written by Paul. Now, he had no thought of writing a great literary masterpiece, he was just writing out of his heart to a church or maybe a son in the ministry. And yet the words that he writes as you read them are scripture themselves. And they're the revelations of God. They rise from one literary peroration to another. And there's no language like it. There's no literature that excels it. This is the man converted on the Damascus road. And it was not long. The Lord was crucified in 33 A.D. And First Thessalonians, Paul wrote that. He wrote that about 50 A.D. Wasn't long after the crucifixion, about 17 years, that Paul wrote that first letter that he wrote to the church at Thessalonica. And just a little while after that, he wrote the first Corinthians letter, out of which Dr. Luther read just now. And in those letters, he expresses an infinitely precious hope in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And he names those to whom the Lord appeared. He names James. He names the 500 or more that saw Jesus in his resurrected body at one time. And, and he talks about all of those that, that Jesus appeared to and talked to on that appointed mountain in Galilee. He speaks of the 12. He speaks of Simon Peter. He talks about the two on the way to Emmaus. When Paul wrote those letters, listen, Paul or Simon Peter and James and all of those to whom the Lord had appeared, they were still alive when Paul wrote that. Any man could have verified those words that the Apostle Paul was writing because most of those witnesses were still alive. Every witness to whom you could have turned in that day would have said, no, Paul is right. I saw him too. I looked upon his face. I talked with him and walked with him for 40 days. The tremendous fact of the conversion of Paul and these avowals that he writes in his letters about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, they're incontrovertible. They're undeniable. Uh, there are 13 of these letters that he wrote. And with Dr. Luke and Acts, uh, and with the epistles to the Hebrews that many think that he wrote, there are actually 16 books, could be 16 books in the New Testament of those 27 that come from the heart and life of the Apostle Paul, this great witness to the resurrection of Jesus. How do you dispute that? How can you deny that? It is a conversional fact to prove the resurrection of Jesus from among the dead. Fact number six, a literary fact. 
Here in the Bible, for anyone and for everyone to read, are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You can take them out and read them today. There's a literary fact in the substance of those four Gospels that usually we never get introduced to. May I speak of it to you now? In those four Gospels, you have the story of God and man. God and man walking, conversing side by side. And in the pages of Scripture, listen, they do it naturally and beautifully and harmoniously. That, listen, is a literary impossibility. But see, through the centuries, great literary giants of this earth have tried to place in converse, side by side, supernatural and the natural, gods and men. And every time one of these great literary giants try to do that, it is manifestly, as you read it, a laborious imagination. And they never succeed at it. It's fictional. It always is fictional. For example, there's not a schoolboy who hasn't been introduced to Greek mythology and Roman mythology. How many of you remember studying that when you were in school? Greek and Roman mythology. I remember studying that. And you read about the, uh, the greatest literary giants of all time. You read about Homer and Aeschylus and Euripides. And, and these marvelous Greek writers were literary giants. You read their drama. I mean, you read their, their ethics and all of them. All of the things that they wrote are about gods and men, their conversation together, their walk together, their relationships together. But there's also not a schoolboy that ever lived that read Dante or Euripides or Sophocles or any of these other ancient Greek authors that didn't realize that what we were reading by these literary giants was manifestly fictitious. It wasn't real. It's strange. It's not in any sense an attempt to portray reality. It's a story. It's just a novel. It's just an imagination. It's just fiction. No matter how hard they try otherwise to write it, it's fiction. Or let's come to our English people, to those of us who speak English, the greatest literary genius of all time is the great mind of William Shakespeare. And Shakespeare tried in the greatest of one of his tragedies called Hamlet. And he has there in a scene, he has in that, uh, in that tragedy a scene between the ghost and Hamlet. But when you read that, you know that it is manifestly fictitious. Even Shakespeare is flavoring with a heavy imagination, trying to make that interaction between the ghost of his father and Hamlet appear plausible, appear reasonable. But it's not. And yet you turn to the Bible, and we read of deity and humanity, God and man, talking and walking and visiting and sharing and even eating together in perfect and beautiful harmony. Rene, Renan, that critic that I spoke of a moment ago, said that the most beautiful, even this critic said the most beautiful story in all of literature is the 24th chapter of the book of Luke. And that's the story of the raised and risen and resurrected Lord as he walked with those two saddened disciples on his way to Emmaus. And he made himself known there during the blessing and the breaking of the bread. So natural, so beautiful, so simple, and so real. And why not? Why not? Because these men who wrote the Gospels, they're not writing out of a prolific, or fertile imagination. These men are writing a plain and a simple and godly, beautiful, marvelous, a heavenly truth. They're just describing in simple language what happened. Jesus raised from among the dead. Jesus, the Savior of our souls. And Jesus blessing the disciples as he ascends into heaven. It is a literary fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. And finally, the last one, number seven, an experiential fact, an experiential fact. I don't know of a greater fact in human experience than this, that Jesus lives. Jesus lives. Listen, he's more alive today than he was then. He's more alive today than he ever was. He lives on university 
campuses. He lives in the academic world. He lives on the dark continent of Africa. He lives in the Amazon jungle. He lives in the Orient. He lives in the great cities of America. He lives in our churches. He lives in our souls, in our homes, and he lives in my heart. Jesus is alive. Alexander the Great is dead. I never hear anyone say otherwise. Julius Caesar, Augustus Octavius, they are dead. I never hear that otherwise. Charlemagne is dead. Napoleon is dead. Frederick the Great is dead. Washington is dead. Lincoln is dead. All of the greats of this earth, they are dead. But Jesus, the Christ, I meet him down almost every road, every day. I see him in 10,000 times, 10,000 faces. I meet him everywhere. Years ago in Haiti, on a missionary trip, I was carried out to several remote villages to help feed and tell those poor and destitute Haitians about Jesus Christ. Took us four hours to go 10 miles into that jungle and the most uncivilized place that you could have ever imagined in your mind. But when they heard the gospel message that they had never heard before, they humbly bowed their heads and some cried, some laughed, but all were changed. I see Jesus down every road. My precious wife, she was in here a while ago, she's not here now, but she lost her sister at 41 years old. Her sister died to cancer. And her sister had told us that she was an atheist prior to her death. And when she found out at 39 years old that she had cancer, my wife just took off everything from her life. Quit a job. We made ends meet best we could. And she stayed with her sister for two solid years until she died. And the first thing she did was went and bought her a Bible and started talking to her about Jesus. And her sister, Rhonda, her life was changed. She came to know Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. And before she died, on so many occasions, when someone would come to visit her or in that hospital room, she would gather them to her and say, let me tell you what happened to me. And just three days before she died, my precious wife and I were the only ones in the room with her at Trident Hospital. And she pulled us close together. She had not been, she wouldn't, wasn't able to speak very loudly in those days before her death. And she said, I want to let you guys know as we gathered by her bed. She said, I want to let you know I am so glad and thankful that I got cancer. And I said, Rhoda, what do you mean? We called her Rhoda. Her name is Rhonda. Rhoda, what do you mean? She said, if it were not for the cancer, I would never have met the Lord. Oh, let me tell you, I meet Jesus down every road. Where do we stop? I don't have time. Time's going to fail me to speak of all the hearts and the lives that the Lord has changed. At every turn, we see Jesus and that he lives. And how would you find time to speak of the living Christ that you've met in your life? You couldn't find enough time. Walking down a chosen road, Pastor, walking down a road that I chose, away from God, one day, my life was changed when I met the Son of God. Some of you would say, I met the Lord at my mother's feet. Others of you would say, I met him in a quiet place of prayer. Some of you would say, I met him at a desk over which I had bowed my head in despair and tears. Others of you would say, Pastor, I met him in church. Some of you would say, I met him one night in my living room when someone came to share him with me. Others might yet say, I met the Lord in a great crisis of life. Still, some of you would say, I met the Lord over an open grave of a loved one. 10,000 times 10,000 would his disciples rise up today and say, I met him. I met him. With eyes of faith, I have seen him. With ears of my soul, he has spoken to my heart. And I have heard that is an undeniable fact, a conversional fact that there is no greater or more valuable, urgent truth than that. And that truth is this, that Jesus was raised from among the dead and Jesus lived 
And Jesus, because of that, is our hope for ages eternal. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, I pray that you would have your way in the rest of this service this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I appeal to you this morning. My invitation to you this morning is this. First of all, if Jesus is really who he said he was, and I hope that I have presented a case for you that is open and shut to prove to you that he was raised from the dead. And if he was raised from the dead, then that means he's who he said he was, that he's the Lord of this universe, that he is king of kings, and that he is savior of the world, savior from our sin. And so, if I presented that kind of thing to you this morning, I'm going to ask you a question, because I believe that you should be confronted right now with a statement. What are you going to do with that, Jesus? What are you going to do with him? If he was raised from the dead, surely that shows that he is God, that he was who he said he was. And if he is who he said he was, then he's going to do what he said he'd do. He would forgive your sins and the bondage of sin, the power of sin, to no longer have hold of your life by trusting him and asking him to forgive you. The Bible says, he will come into your life and do just that. Forgive you of your sins. So I'm going to ask you this morning, if you are not saved, Richard, what does that mean? What does it mean to be saved? It means to know for sure that your sins are forgiven and to know for sure that if you die tonight, that you would go to heaven if you die. If you're not sure of that, then I'm going to ask you this morning to slip out of your seat at this moment and come down here. Let me have your hand. We'll share with you how you can know for sure before you leave this auditorium that that raised Jesus, that one who came out from the grave, will save you and give you eternal life and change your whole life. Listen, if there's a great benefit of being a Christian, yes, it's eternal, and it's when this life is over for sure. But listen, there's benefit in coming to Christ right now. The Bible says if you come to Christ now, that you'll be a new creation. Old things pass away. All things become new. He gives you a deal. He gives you a fresh start. He forgives you. Some of you this morning are burdened. You're bogged down in your life with things that you don't have any control of. You just don't know how you're going to make it from day to day, whether it's financially or emotionally. Maybe you're addicted to something. You don't know how you're going to ever get over that. I'm going to tell you, you will never get over it on your own. But if Jesus comes to take up residence in your heart, and you ask him to forgive you because to save you. He gives you that resurrection power and same power that he came up out of the grave with. The same power that raised him from the dead. Now you have that power available to you to invite him into your heart. And then those things that kept you in bondage, those things no longer will keep you in bondage. You can overcome them. You're not saved this morning. I want you to come. Perhaps you already have given your heart to the Lord, but you've not made it public. Today, will you come down this aisle? And let me introduce you to our related folks. And let them know that you've made a decision for Christ. Maybe you're visiting with us and you've been visiting for some time. Maybe you're visiting the first time today. And the Lord is laying it on your heart that this will be the place that God wants you to worship from, to help until He comes. If you come today, we would love to have you a part of our fellowship today. Or maybe it's just that many of you on this Easter Sunday would like a fresh start, Christian. Maybe you might say this morning, you know, I've walked away from God in my life a little bit. But I want to get that right. I want to recommit and rededicate. Or maybe there's something on your heart that you want to just give to God this morning. You come do that. I hope that many of you will come and pray for the lost in our neighborhood that we might have a chance to reach them for Jesus Christ as we go out. Whatever it is the Lord has laid on your heart. Tony, what are we saying? Have you missed the council while we stand, while we sing, and while you sing? Have you been to the mountain where the Lord Jesus suffered? Have you been to Calvary? Have you been to the place of redemption? 
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.